This morning I've entitled my message, Political Intrigue and Power. Uh, This is a series called Confidence in Crisis. In the first of the messages, we looked at the story of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. And what we saw was that God has faithful people, sometimes in the most surprising places. The widow of Zarephath was in the habit of offering hospitality. She had been directed by God to put the needs of his work first in the form of his prophet. If she had not done that, she would have missed out on the sustaining power of God and the amazing faith-building journey of God sustaining her needs. Elijah Elijah had to actually cross a line and put himself first in this situation because it was an actual test in regards to the experience of, of this woman. We also saw that in Elisha's ministry, there were more miraculous miracles with food than any other prophet in the Bible. And so for those hundreds of days where the woman was provided food miraculously, which sustained Elijah, and also with the raven, and also with the angelic preparation of food, and also with the fact that Elijah ran 40 days down to Mount Sinai in the strength of those two angelic meals. Important for us to understand, God has no problem providing food for his people in the time of trouble. There will be hunger at different times along the way. No doubt this will be a test to see if we trust that God can provide for us as he provided for those in the past. So let us not think as we march into the future that we will never be hungry. That is not the case. We will have bread and water provided for sure, but we will also be tested to see if we can be okay while we're waiting for God to meet our needs. Last week we looked at confidence in crisis while we were surviving in a surveillance state. And we saw that Elisha was God's instrumentality for knowing the words of the Aramean king when he was in his most private palatial estate. That Aramean king didn't like this insight that was coming providentially to the prophet, and he surrounded the city of Dothan. And we saw that God is well able to take care of his children when they are limited in their freedom by way of uh, regimes or laws that limit mobility or the exchange of idea and thought. This morning we're going to be looking at an amazing story, and this time we're going to be looking at political intrigue and power. Now I have a purpose in this series of sermons, and it's to show you that in the time of the end, the only provision that will be any good in the sustaining and protecting of God's people will be the presence of God. In other words, it will be the spiritual confidence in this unseen God who is absolutely real and alive to us that will be our shelter in the time of storm. There will be no provision of money or food or wilderness survival skills or any of these other things that will make the difference. Now, there will be a moment in time in which country living and being out from under the watchful eye of the masses and the dynamics of of networking inside these highly intensely populated areas, there will be some measure of validity to a bit of preparation that precedes the time of trouble. But when it comes to the moments in which the battle is on and the intense desire of Satan is to destroy God's people, one thing and one thing alone will keep us alive. Which is why learning to practice the presence of Christ in our ordinary daily lives today is so important. Maybe God prompts you to put a little more money in the offering plate. Maybe he's actually prompting you to a consistent, systematic giving that puts you out of your comfort zone. 
Maybe it's less money in the savings account. Maybe it's not as nice a house, or maybe it's getting by with an older car. Maybe it's learning to get by with secondhand this or secondhand that. There was a phrase that was in my mother's or my wife's uh, mother's family. Use it up, wear it out, make it do, do without. We would do a lot better to be practicing that right now so that we could put more time, energy, and money into the cause of God. It's not our 401k that's going to be our salvation, although if Jesus lingers, we'll need it. So I'm not suggesting we don't make provision for it. But friends, learning to hear the voice of God moving us in the now, getting us out of our comfort zones into a discomfort zone that's divinely architected creates faith. Because learning to hear the voice of God is the preeminent relational skill that we're going to need in the time of the end. That voice behind us saying, as Isaiah 30 says, this is the way, walk ye in it, is not waiting for the time of the end. It's seeking to speak today. And like our Sabbath school lesson is taking us on a journey with the living Word of God, the living Word Jesus, we're to be walking with Him in that now. Now, uh, I had somebody email me this week asking how I was sure that COVID-19 was not the beginning of the end. Well, I'm not a prophet, so I can't say absolutely that it's not the time of the end, although we're living in that general time of the end. But next week, I'm going to spend, I think, most of the sermon, if not the entirety of the sermon, focusing on why the, the spirit of prophecy and the scriptures are not describing this as the final movements. It's a wake-up call. The question is, are we waking up? I want you to think about how God wants people to know what's coming. This is what God always does. He's not out to surprise people and then pull the rug out from under them. Ten plagues. Why were there ten plagues? There were ten plagues because God wanted to wake up every Egyptian who would be willing to be woken out of their stupor. He actually wanted to get Pharaoh. When we think about the experience of 20 years of Babylon, Babylonian oppression upon uh, the Jews in, in the 6th or 7th century B.C. Nebuchadnezzar came. He took Daniel back. He left most of the Jews there. He came back about nine years later. This time he took Ezekiel and 10,000 artisans and craftsmen. He left the rest of the city there. Finally, he comes back and destroys the city after 11 years of rebellion by the Jewish kings. But God was trying to get their attention and show them what was coming. God is not in the habit of keeping people in disadvantaged positions for making good decisions. COVID-19 is the beginning, or it is a continuation, I should say, of a wake-up call. Let's think about this. 911, about 20 years ago. What was going on? God was showing us that there was a general dynamic of hatred and instability that was growing into the relating of different nations. We saw a restriction of some measures of liberty. When I talked last week about survival in a surveillance state, we talked about permanent record, Edwin Snowden's book, about all the information that the United States government is gathering on us. Now, I'm not a conspiratist, although I know the Bible describes conspiracies, but the Bible reveals what those conspiracies are so that we can have confidence in the God who sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and isn't caught off guard by those who hate his faithful remnant and the advancement of his church. I want you to think about 12 years ago, 2008. We had a, a wake-up call economically. 
The whole thing, we could have seen all kinds of systems collapsing. We could have seen financial chaos of an order that has never been known, that would have superseded the 1929 destruction of the stock market. And I want you to think about the fact that right now God is showing us how quickly the final movements can be rapid ones. But in each of these we see a recurring theme and that is that our liberties can be restricted very easily. And God is giving us a a sense of the convulsions, the the divine, as it were, deliverance pangs of, of God's soon coming. So this morning I want to make a journey into the life of Esther her experience, what it means to us. God is calling us to recognize that larger than any political power and the muscle that can be flexed by the networks of of civic structures, he's there for us in the midst of these moments. The series in general is designed to show you the power of God to deliver. Don't be afraid. God's people are to have confidence in times of crisis. He's the God who provides food. He's the God who takes care of overextensions of, of, of political oppression as he did with Elisha. He's the God who can deliver and he delivers in the midst of political intrigue and power. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Esther, just before the book of Job, just before the book of Psalms, and let's see how God related to the Jews who were not so much in exile, but were still largely outside of his plan. You say, Pastor, why do you say that? God had called his people to go back where the destruction had been wrought and to rebuild the temple and rebuild uh, the components of Israelite society. He still had plans for the nation of Israel. The promises made to Jeremiah were promises that were to be kept. Unfortunately, there were a number of Jews who decided that the luxury of the new Babylonian empire was more to be desired than the faith journey and the discomforts of glorifying God's name. The beginning of this story is the story of Ahasuerus or Xerxes, depending on which version of the Bible you're reading. Same person, a temperamental king, one not given to the steadiness of good decision-making as the Bible narrative describes. And in this introduction of this story, we find a huge party going on. As a matter of fact, it's a party that lasts for upwards of half a year. Verse 8 of chapter 1, the drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion for so long as the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. We come down to verse 10 and we find that Vashti is having her own party. It seems to be in a much more temperate fashion. It's the seventh day of a party. But there's an interesting commentary in this verse. It says, the heart of the king was merry with wine. So I want to assert to you in the beginning of this confrontation with political intrigue and power as we consider where the path of prophecy has us, I want to assure you that sobriety matters. This is not an age for inebriation. Inebriation, another name for intoxication. I want you to think about that word. Uh, Peter will tell us, be sober and be vigilant for your adversary the devil goes about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Look at the word intoxication. What is it that the devil would like to place into our lives that's actually poisonous to our spiritual progress? You say, I don't drink beer. I don't drink wine. 
I don't drink those coolers. I'm not into the hard stuff either. I don't do drugs. But the point of the scriptures and the warning of Paul in the New Testament is to not be conformed to the issues of this, of this age and of this world. When Jesus is telling the story of the sower and he's talking about the weeds that grow up in the plot of ground where the seed grew, the real issue is what is it that has the potential in your life to choke out or to destroy? What's in your life that is potentially poisonous to the future spiritual life of your being? Indeed, inebriation is a problem in the beginning of this story. If ever there was a day and age which we should be sober and be vigilant, it's today. Does that sobriety mean not being happy? I've seen people drunk. When you're foolish and happy when you're drunk, it doesn't last and it's built on falsehood. When you're sober, if you want to be happy, it can be built on purity and innocence, natural humor, friendship and togetherness, Happiness is not an issue. And, and the phraseology here used by the author of Esther about the king being merry with wine is describing the kind of merriment that the king actually has, which is the kind that's going to bring sorrow when the chapter is finished. A sober person has the best ability to be happy in Christ. and That's what he's calling us to. Don't think for a moment that the admonition of the New Testament preachers is the one of dour living. God's people are actually the happiest people because they're safe in the hands of Jesus. They're safe under his wings. They know they have a place in his family and they're looking forward to a place in his home. And God's calling us to be the happiest sober people on the face of the planet. But the devil is stalking us, looking to find out at what points and places in our life he can intoxicate us, put the toxin in that has a pleasure on the front side and pain on the back side that keeps us from being ready to meet the issues that are coming upon the world. While I don't think that COVID-19 is the final stroke leading to the final movements, it is a divine wake-up call how sad it would be if those who find themselves in the, in the lock of fear at this moment should breathe a sigh of relief and simply go on showing that their life is nothing but self-focused anyway. And they'll wait till the next serious crisis to get the next sense of false assurance. Because if I was right, and I believe I am, I think I can show you, that this is not the beginning of the end. It's just showing us the end is near. And if you don't have any interest beyond changing unless the end is really, really close, you have a variety of wrong understandings about God, the nature of salvation, how to be ready, and what readiness means to life in the ordinary and the lordship of Christ in the glorious ordinary. Intoxication. It could be the pursuit of an occupation. It could be the love of money. It could be the wrong kind of relating to the wrong kind of people. It could actually be substance. There's all kinds of things. It could be the cheap, frilly websites, the YouTube videos that you're watching. It could be living vicariously off the halls of other people's lives. But whatever it is in this moment of COVID-19, when we get a chance to pause, and by the way, friends, make sure you're taking a chance to pause. Don't just fill this moment with more screen time, at least not any more than you have to. I know some of you listening to me are teachers, and your life is more busy now than it's been because everything takes two or three more steps than it used to take. But make sure that you're not allowing your children to fill their lives up with more screen time. If there was ever a good time to be bored, 
and go out and play in the backyard or be creative and learn to draw or read a good book. It's now. The devil is trying to sow the seeds of intoxication, intoxicating tendencies so that there will be a poisonous pill to destroy the pursuits of spiritual growth. May God save us from each of these things. Under the influence of alcohol, Xerxes says to his seven eunuchs who oversee the harem, get Vashti and bring her in here. We're going to show her off. The only problem is, is that Vashti is not drunk. And she says, no. Verse 12, Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry and his wrath burned within him. Of course, there's fewer emotional controls on an intoxicated person. And by the way, friends, if your intoxication has nothing to do with alcohol or drugs, but you're intoxicated, let's say, in making money and someone stands in your way, you can get just as mad as he got. When you're on the wrong path and somebody gets in your way, your emotions can fly off the handle because somebody's stopping you from getting what you want. It might be as simple as picking up the mail out of the mailbox. It might be as simple as not being able to go where you want to go. But get in somebody's way who's going the wrong direction and their emotions can fly off the handle as well. There's a steadiness in God's people because the path of peace is one that doesn't tend towards the exaggerations of emotion. Vashti refuses. We should see in this story immediately that there are people of integrity everywhere even if they don't know God yet. This woman, for the value system she holds, is going to be true to it. She believes, I'm confident, no doubt, that when Xerxes is no longer under the influence of alcohol, he'll realize what a foolish thing he has done. I believe the spirit of prophecy bears this out for those that put confidence in those writings. Search it out and see. But it's important for us to understand there are people following the truth they know in all kinds of places of life. And if you're tuned in today and you're one of those people, I encourage you to take full advantage of this moment in which we are to shelter in place. Go deeper into the Word of God. Discover who He really is. The third thing I need you to know about this story is that people of integrity will create crises. No, I can't do that. It goes against who I am as a person. No, I can't lie for you. No, I can't steal for you. No, I can't look the other way while you're ruining yourself in a wrong relationship, perhaps even immoral. These are things that a person of integrity cannot do. Failing to do right will destroy right in the heart of the possessor. Doing right establishes right. By doing, we become. She was not willing to be displayed as a peace in the king's uh, large trophy case. And her saying no creates a crisis inside potentially, at least according to the counselors of the king, every woman in the kingdom. Now the truth of the matter is to have noble women in the kingdom who know how to respectfully stand up to their husbands would be a good thing. But don't be surprised, friends, when following your convictions leads you into a position of crisis. That's what happened in the story of Esther. And by the way, Vashti is the first and often unsung heroine of the book. This is a book about women leadership, women 
character, women standing up in crisis. And if ever there was an appeal coming to the women of the faith community today to be who they're called to be, it's echoing loudly and reverberating throughout society and certainly in this book, in this message, that we are to be the godly women of integrity that Vashti and Esther were. The third thing for us to notice, the fourth thing for us to notice along the way is that these people of integrity pay a high price. Vashti is actually removed from her position in the kingdom. She's no longer queen when the story is all over. She fades off into history, but her faithfulness is recorded in heaven. And I'd like to believe that the prominence of Esther, who was willing to break a Persian principle, a Persian rule, and come in before the king, I'd like to think that somehow along the way, Esther's God became the bulwark of Vashti's life after she smarted under paying the price of being a woman of integrity. For I believe Vashti was a woman that was pursuing and living out the truth she knew. Would this not potentially create a bond between these two women? Both of them potentially in dangerous situations with their former and current husband. When we come down to the story, we see it escalating when Mordecai will not bow down to Haman. Haman has become one of Xerxes' right-hand men, his main man. And the storyline, as we would have it, is that as Haman would come and go from the palace, Mordecai would not bow down. Now, there's nothing wrong in showing a measure of honor to someone, but the Scripture records that Mordecai would not do this because he was a Jew. Esther chapter 3, looking at verse 4. Now it was when they had spoken daily to him, and he would not listen to them. In other words, bow down before Haman. You're going to get yourself in trouble. That they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. Now, it's not uncommon for a person to bow down in the presence of a monarch. The problem was that in some monarchies, not only was the king himself, but there was a conference of divinity upon other people. And different commentators believe this must have been the case with Haman, that somehow his exaggerated sense of self had gotten that way probably with the assistance of the king. And Mordecai was unwilling to bow down to this. He recognized honor where honor was due, but he refused to give obeisance or worship to one who was not worthy of it. And this created quite a problem. For indeed, Haman, discovering he was a Jew, was bent on destroying all of his types. He proffered a large amount of money to the king, to Xerxes, to Ahasuerus. The deal was signed. The signet ring was used. And there was a decree that on a certain day, all of those that were of the ancestry of Abraham should be extinguished. Mordecai becomes aware of the order, and he decides that there's something to be done. The doing is now going to be in the hands of Esther. Now you need to realize that Esther is not immune from falling into the casual comfort of being in a good place in life. This was not only true of the broad culture of the Jews who had become of certain comfortable and wealthy inside the provinces of Persia, but it was also certainly could be easily said of the queen herself, who had been catapulted to the highest spot of femininity in the culture. And yet, 
her day is disturbed when she learns that Mordecai is going about in sackcloth and ashes. He won't go in before the king or the king's gate because this is illegal. No one is to appear like this in front of the king. But he will appear in such a way to get the attention of Esther. Verse 4, Esther chapter 4. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and they told her. And the queen writhed in great anguish. And she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might move, remove his sackcloth from him. But he did not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. And of course, the message comes back. He also, verse 8, gave him a copy of the text of the edict which had been issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go into the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. Hathak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king, to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I've not been summoned to come before the king for 30 days. Let's think about this for a moment. Obviously, Mordecai is aware of this law. If everybody in the province knows it, certainly a courtesan in the courtyard would know it. I want us to also recognize for a moment the fear this must have struck into the heart of Vashti. For indeed, or of Esther. For if Vashti could be put off, certainly while there was no law that had been written down and broken in regard... Well, there may have been, but for Vashti, at least, it was not an immediate summons to death. For Esther, it has the potential to be such. And she's reminding Mordecai of the unreasonableness of his prompt. It's important for us all to recognize that true friends and true family will call us to our commitments and and to a fulfilling of our divine destiny and our convictions when sometimes we are hesitant or reticent to do it. The Bible says two are better than one. What's the prompt that sometimes comes from the second in the partnership of life, be it a friend or a spouse? It's sometimes a reminder that we need to stiffen our spine and do what duty calls us to in spite of the dire consequences. For indeed, Mordecai understood this would be an an abrogation of Persian law. It would be a, a crossing of cultural permissions. But it still needed to be done. And while Esther pushes back, Mordecai is not done pushing himself. Esther's words were related to Mordecai, verse 12. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the rest of the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time of this. You talk about a fierce conversation. It's not in the personal presence. But Mordecai does a couple things. 
Number one, he's very honest with her. And he says, don't you think for a moment that the venom and the vengeance of this man will stop anywhere. This is a Persian law. It's carried out in spite of the king's desire to change it when he finds out its full ramifications. We see this in regard to the story of Daniel in the lion's den. So first of all, Mordecai says, don't think for a moment you're going to get a pass. So it's a sober wake-up call to say, you know what? You've got skin in the game. So get in the game. The second thing that Mordecai does is he reminds her of God's destiny for her in placing her in this position. There can be no doubt that she went from orphan girl, trauma of being orphaned, tragedy of a life not wrecked, but certainly twisted by the absence of parents of whom Mordecai was a stand-in. But now it's a journey on to triumph because even in Mordecai's words, there is an assurance that deliverance will come. But if it was for you to do, it won't be for you if you don't do it. A serious sober wake-up call. Indeed, true friends, deep bonds are sometimes strained and stressed in the name of truth. You may have somebody in your house who's destroying themselves. They're intoxicated, they're addicted, and they're deepening the addiction. I'm talking especially to women right now. This book is an amazing vindication of the power of feminine character to nerve to be nerved on behalf of good, of right, of the cause of Christ. But there is oftentimes a real temptation for a woman to abdicate her call by God to face a difficult situation, to say the things that need to be said, to take the stand that needs to be taken. God is calling women today within earshot of this message or those who listen to it in its internet archive state to understand that always ever a woman is never to have her identity subjugated in the relationship she has to a man, be it father or husband, in place of the first allegiance to God himself. And it is that allegiance that will sometimes cause a woman to move beyond anything that she discerns to be potentially comforting or with any potential except for frustration and and hurt and ruin relationally to come out of it. But there's no doubt in this moment that the first woman of the book of Esther has laid the groundwork for the second. And I believe both of these women are laying the groundwork for the, for the third, for the generations that will follow afterwards, for all those that will listen to this message here today. Be the woman you're called to be. Stand in humility and in righteousness. Know how to pay respect where respect is due. Understand the right relating between the genders, but never for a moment subjugate yourself to what you can perceive to be the best outcome as you follow compromised principles. No, God is calling Esther into a relationship that is going to potentially stress her immensely and put her life on the line. But Esther understands where to go. Verse 15, Esther told them, reply to Mordecai like this, go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days or, or nights. And I and my maidens will also fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. It's easy for us to read this story glibly. Oh, we know she didn't perish. Can you imagine the sensation as she's walking down the long hallway into the presence of the king? Can you imagine the adrenaline rush 
Can you sense the, the little bit of perspiration growing on her forehead? Can you feel her heart beating inside of her? Indeed, there is this journey of prayer that prepares her, so certainly some of those dynamics are mitigated. But the Bible doesn't say that I'll never be afraid. What it says is what time I am afraid, I'll trust in you. Prayer and fasting. Every Jew in the capital city was called to an experience of spiritual focus based on a spiritual crisis and all by Esther's willingness to comply and go forward with the prompt of her cousin Mordecai are going to be taken to higher ground and a clearer focus. Have you ever fasted and prayed? We're living in an age of indulgence. You can eat whenever you want. I'm going to talk about food for a minute. There are all kinds of other things that people are binging in. But I want to talk with you about food because it's the most basic appetite. Two or three times a day, your body says, I'm hungry, feed me. Have you ever gone on a journey where you say to yourself, I'm going to prepare mentally and spiritually to not eat? And for a period of time, if your health can withstand it, I'm not suggesting anybody in a compromised situations should do this and if everybody has a doubt talk to your doctor but for most of us that have a baseline of good health the idea of going without food for a period of time has an amazing way to recalibrate the appetite it has an ability to free up time to seek God it has the ability to give rest to the physical apparatus to the human body The Bible says to a hungry man, every bitter thing is sweet, but to a man who is full, he loathes even honey. The latter half of the verse represents most of American and Western society. We have what we want. We have it in abundance. We don't know the joy, the clarity of thought. We don't know the confidence that grows out of simply saying no to ourselves for a period of time. But it's not just enough to go without eating. In this case, there's a spiritual purpose. There's a spiritual victory that has to be achieved, and it's only coming through prayer. This echoes with the sentiments of 2 Chronicles 7.14, that if my people who are called by my name will humble myself and pray, God will heal their land. He'll listen from heaven and heal their land. As long as we have what we need, it appears to be all right with most Western Seventh-day Adventist Christians that the church and church schools, that the mission schools and the missionary endeavors can keep receding. We seem to be quite well with making sure that everybody in our families feel very assured in our love and nobody feels very challenged that they're deviating spiritually. Esther was tempted to reside in the comfort of her cocoon in the palace. And Mordecai says, don't think that the layers of that cocoon aren't going to be ripped off. The, The real issue, friends, is whether or not we face the crisis while they're small and grow in spiritual strength, or we come up to a crisis we're not prepared to and we're run over by the world. God is calling all of us to hit the pause button, not being able to go into work, Not being able to socialize the way we have before shouldn't be an experience where we just fill our time up with everything else. I'm calling upon God's people in this moment when we realize that there will be political intrigue and power moves to destroy us. I'm calling us now to start exercising the experience of the the great Methodist church that fasted two days a week. 
They did it in the similar fashion of the, of the Jews of Christ's age. Fasting and prayer is a journey to spiritual insight and a deepening encounter with Christ, which leads to spiritual confidence and power. And when we never stop, when the body, aside from the fact that the body heals itself in special ways. And by the way, friends, you look at some of these people that have practiced these habits. We know scientifically that people who eat too much live shorter lives. What we also can take assurance of is that actually telling no to the taste buds is part of a journey of lengthening one's physical life and promoting one's physical health. And who's not interested in this? There's all kinds of information on this that can be verified. And now it's almost a fad to do this intermittent fasting. But I'm appealing to you. Take a day and set it aside to fast and pray. And I am talking about food if your body is up to it. The first fall surrounded food. The first victory of Christ surrounded food. God does not want us destroyed by the inability to say no to ourselves. And there's nothing upon which we have more opportunity to say no to ourselves than perverted or overindulged appetite. The victory for the Jewish race in the days of Esther was the victory that will be ours as we anticipate greater days of trauma in the future. It is a group assembling to pray. Of course, we can't assemble right now, but we're assembling online. We've had our largest prayer meetings since this has happened. 500 and some a Wednesday night ago, 800 and some last Sabbath afternoon. I'm inviting everybody that's watching right now to come to the prayer meeting this afternoon at 4 o'clock. And by the way, the Sabbath is not a day of fasting. That's how they broke the, the love and the relish for the Sabbath in the early Christian centuries. Fast on another day. The Sabbath is a day for seeking God and enjoying the beautiful gifts that He's given. But when it comes to this determined ability to break into a relationship with God, to come into a closer sense of assurance, God allows us at times to choose to say no to everything else so that we can say yes to hearing what he's saying. Real intimacy with, with each other and a knowledge of oneself comes in this relationship to God. There's something about entering into communion with God which is a revelation of our own selves as well as a revelation of God's presence, his will, and his power to save for the moment of crisis, whether it be in the present or whether it be in the future. There is power in prayer. It is not genius. It is not strategy. It is not education that shows Esther what to do. It is the aid of the angels. It is the presence of the Spirit. It is the promises of God brought back to the mind as one searches the Scriptures and prays back the promises to God. And Esther comes out of that three days saying, Yes, I will do this. Let's not take it for granted that somehow she just summoned all that natural familial uh, confidence that was in her lineage. We don't know if it was or it wasn't. We do know in the initiating steps, she says, that isn't going to happen. But when it's all said and done, she's on her way down the hallway to encounter the king, having prayed her way into God's will, has the assurance that whether this is the end of her life or the beginning of deliverance, she's okay with it. But either way, her soul was delivered from fear by going farther into the spiritual disciplines of prayer than she had ever gone before. It's an amazing plan that she has, a, a two-encounter engagement with Xerxes and Haman. 
And she, on the first night, is requested to reveal her desires. And she says, tomorrow night, please. In that very night, the king can't sleep. You think this is just happenstance or coincidence? Peter's deliverance from the jail in Jerusalem after the death of Christ is of no less an ordering of God's divine imposition and placing himself for deliverance in the situation than Xerxes' inability to sleep. That night, while he cannot sleep, he has the court recorder going over the books. And he discovers that this man, Mordecai, around which this whole crisis began, was never rewarded for his making the establishment aware of a coup, of a plot to assassinate the king. I don't have the time to go through the whole story, but we begin to see the situation where God's people beginning to turn as the king says to Haman when he comes in one morning, what should I do for the one that the king wants to honor? And Haman is so full of himself, he says, uh, well, put him on a horse, the king's horse, and put him in the king's clothes and put the king's crown on him and send somebody in front of him saying, this is how the king honors honorable people. It turns out it is Mordecai. There are gallows actually built to destroy Mordecai. And between the time of the first encounter Esther has with the king and the second one, even Haman has a sense. His wife, as one pointed out to me, the third woman in this book, even Haman has a sense that things might be going the wrong direction. On the second night, with her courage running strong, Esther reveals the terrible, twisted mind of Haman to destroy all of her people. Xerxes leaves the room. He's so upset. When he comes back, he finds Haman in a compromised physical posture relative to the queen and the gallows that Mordecai was to die on will be used for Haman himself. This storyline shows once again the extremity of God's people. The problem is, friends, if we don't prepare through the spiritual preparation in the moments of God's wake-up call, we should find ourselves without the confidence to lean on the everlasting arms in the time of real distress and disaster. I want to look at Peter's admonition to women. First Peter chapter 3. It's so very, very important that we understand the powerful role that a woman can play. In the beginning, when Adam and Eve lost their divine inheritance, their divine gift of the Garden of Eden, it was the result of two bad decisions, but those decisions were not of equally grievous import. Eve was deceived into accepting a lie. She was lied to. God was lied about. She took the fruit and ate it. But when she brought the fruit to Adam, Adam was not lied to. Adam was not deceived. Adam chose in the full state of reason to take Eve. Perhaps you could say a measure of intoxication overcame him. But to choose Eve over God. We see today in many churches more women sitting in the pews than men. 
Let not your heart be troubled, preachers. Let not your heart be troubled, ladies. Let not your heart be troubled, administrators. If men won't work for God, let the women work for God. Let the women rise up to the full stature of Esther's calling. Let them rise up to the full stature of Sarah's leading. For indeed, when Peter is dealing with the dynamic of this very same thing two millennia ago, back in a day in which spiritual power was exercised in many places, there still seemed to be a tendency for women to be engaged with the people of God. The apostolic church appears to have a a different kind of relationship even then between the sexes. 1 Peter chapter 3, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. There's something about God in a person. It doesn't matter what their gender is. There's something about God in a person that commands respect and creates influence. Verse 2, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. The world calls women to all kinds of other behaviors, all kinds of other self-focused actions. But to be modest and respectful is an amazing thing. Your adornment must not be merely external, the braiding of the hair and the wearing of gold jewelry, the putting on of dresses, but uh, fine linen, expensive clothes, some versions say, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. I cannot for a moment doubt that when Esther was chosen to be queen, it wasn't just because the package was so much more beautiful. It's because what radiated from the package was even more beautiful still. This is the storyline of God's people. It's not just that what is visible has a marked difference in how one is adorned and how one carries itself. It's that there is this beautiful glow, this shining light that flows from the heart and lives in the experience and creates an environment around God's people, in this case, women of beauty. But I'm not done. Verse 5, for in this way in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Now, I'm not going to let this go by. There's no doubt that Vashti was in all, in all uh, aspects a person who understood her place and her position. But she did understand that even the king would be remiss in asking her to come and display herself in front of a group of drunken men. It would be a terrible thing to have a noble, beautiful, dignified woman standing before drunken men who were hooting and whistling and making vulgar remarks, and she refused to be a part of it. When it comes to the storyline of Esther, she also understood not just where the lines of political power were drawn, but she understood also the social dynamics But beyond this, Peter is writing, Paul will affirm, our very nature describes it, there's this element of differentness in regards to the genders. And especially in the home, there is an element of respect to be shown for the responsibilities born in a somewhat disproportionate way by the man. There is a dynamic of respect. Paul will refer to it in Ephesians chapter 5 when he's describing how men and women should relate in the estate of marriage. And he's making it very clear that respect is an essential factor to a harmonized relationship between the genders. And when he gets down to the very end, he capstones it again by saying, but remember this, show respect to your husband. And indeed, submission is something that many women are not willing to participate in today. 
And no doubt, many of them can proclaim with legitimacy that some of the men that they're attached to, we call them husbands, are not terribly worthy of a lot of respect. But it doesn't change the fact that if you'd like to influence them and move them in the name of God and for the sake of your marriage, carry yourself as Esther carried herself, carry yourself as these godly women carried themselves, and the chances are that the influence of heaven will move in your very presence and affect the people you're encountering. And then it goes on, after, and then it goes on in verse 6 to say, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children. And then you have this very interesting phrase that's tacked on. If you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. I want every woman listening to me right now or will be listening later in a recorded uh, encounter with this message. What is God calling you to do? What is he putting on your heart that is actually meant to nerve and reshape the culture of your home? How is God leading you to be your own person to stand with your shoulders erect without any kind of spiritual incrimination as you come before the maker willing to let him be truly Lord of all that you are. Lord of your relationships, which of course you don't want to strain and stretch and stress. The truth of the matter is, when a woman who probably because her initial encounter with Lucifer was different, did not wound her natural devotion to the divine as much, when a woman will follow the call of God and be the person she's called to be. Look at Esther and see what can change. How many homes the husband is running the spiritual life of the family out into the swamp, the intoxicating swamp. If the woman would only find a respectful way, if the woman's walk with Christ was only such to command the respect, If she should not in prayer approach her husband with the same prayerful intentionality that Esther approached hers, what might change? How many children have the spell of Lucifer on them and the food for the intoxication is being provided by mom and dad? If ever we were living in a dangerous age, it is this one. Writing... Ellen White said in 1906, My brother, you should see and understand that God is in earnest with you. May the Lord God of Israel break the spell that's been upon you. In the name of the Lord, I tell you, it will be your eternal loss if you continue to stand where you are. In other words, it's time to move. Satan is playing the game of life for your soul. You think he's not playing it for your spouse? You think he's not playing it for your kids? Break the spell. And take your position wholly on the side of truth and righteousness. Friends, you need to understand from this story, God has something in mind. He's showing you that he is the cornerstone of all happiness and confidence and faith. And that he can drive fear out of your life. Perfect love, the scripture says, casts out fear. And it is that perfect love for Jesus that will allow us to confront our fears and yet carry ourselves in such a way as to command the greatest amount of respect. Yes, friends, I don't believe that COVID-19 is the beginning of the end. I believe it's another wake-up call on a scale that's epic, that's gone beyond what the last two or three generations have seen. But I do know this. 
God is calling us in this moment, whether it is faithfulness and generosity with food or something else like the woman of Zarephath, or whether it is just confidence that in the midst of a surveillance society, you know, in some places they're stopping you. In in Rhode Island, they're stopping you if your license plate says New York. Some people are questioning the constitutionality of that kind of stop. But whether our liberty is restricted or not, the one thing God is doing, it is He's calling us to cast our anchor on the side of faith, to link ourselves to something that won't move, to determine that His presence in our life is enough to overcome the fear that presents itself in these moments of discomfiture. Indeed, friends, all of these things, including this COVID-19 moment, are a call for us to seek God with a different intentionality, to be dependent upon Him with an absolute confidence that's growing in little steps. They may start out as baby steps. But there can be no doubt that the moment will come someday in which the strain and the stress placed upon our confidence in Christ will be so great that if possible, the devil will seek to sever our ties to Christ. Listen, friends. Jesus is in the sanctuary representing us. Our anchor is cast beyond the veil. Let us not lose hope and faith. May we find in the ordinary a call to stretching a bit, to moving beyond what would be comfortable for us. And may we find in that moment deliverance for somebody else. If the culture in your home is wrong, if there's a spiritually poisonous pill operative inside the family dynamics of your home, certainly during this time, which is a recalibration and a refocusing moment, we should take some extra time to pray. And in the now, we should find an extra confidence to be the person God has called us to be. Whether it creates a crisis in relationship or not, let us be wise as these women that Peter referred to were. But in the end, Let us follow like Sarah followed. Men, I invite you as well, but especially ladies. Today, God's calling you to be the third woman. He's calling you to be the one who follows his convictions, who hears that voice saying, this is the way, this is the word, speak it. This is the thing to do, do it. For indeed, friends, the future is is full of more trauma. There can be no doubt. But we need not fear, for our anchor is cast within the veil. And we have an anchor that keeps the soul. May God be keeping us today so that in the future we're not afraid of evil forebodings. God be with you. It doesn't matter if there's political intrigues and political powerful movements going on. There will be. We know it. But there will be godly men and godly women who stand up for the cause of truth. And today, he's calling you and me and our sphere to do the same. God be with you in this new week. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.